You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Thank you, Pastor David and worship team for preparing our hearts so beautifully for the Lord using you to prepare our hearts so beautifully for his word. I'm jealous. I'm going to be in Australia that weekend that the conference is going to be, the young adult conference. Um, Allison leaves today. I'll follow her in a couple of weeks, but uh, I would love to be here. Going to be words like chesed from the Hebrew. Need to make sure you have a head cold before you try to speak Hebrew. Um, <clears throat> there'll be charis from the Greek. I don't think, I think we might increase attendance for the young adult conference if we put agape onto the docket, but I don't think it's on there so far. But it's going to be a great time, and I would affirm what David said, if these guys are okay, come on in, no matter what age you are, you will enjoy that weekend. Well, um, I appreciated uh, the way that David led us into prayer time and led us into that last song, Come Lord Jesus, thinking about the difficulties of our day and the challenges that we have with the, the spirit of, of animus, animosity that just is so prevalent in our day. And so I want to ask you as we Think about moving towards the word. How much of what you hear other people say or what you read of others' writings do you believe? Do you like this guy? I, li I like this guy. This lady, I'm going to follow whatever she says. There are not too many people that we, we would think like that, I suppose. Um, most of us are skeptical of anyone who is not of our tribe. Do you believe in science or are you a science denier? Well, what is science? I just believe that what is in your heart is the most important. Look, there are multiple variations of such claims. How much do our beliefs on eternal matters matter? As we learned from last week's text, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11 if we miss the truth of the gospel, we've missed everything. It, nothing else matters if you don't understand what it means to be a Christian by following the truth of the gospel. The Apostle Paul stated in very simple terms, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried rose from the dead three days later, was raised from the dead three days later, according to the scriptures. And then he made appearances to many to affirm his resurrections. Jesus died to absorb the wrath of a righteous and holy God that is rightly directed towards sin and sinners. And when we believe, when we confess that we are sinners and we believe we're, un we're forgiven and united with Jesus. We become one with him. The truth of this gospel factors into all of 1 Corinthians 15. In today's text, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 34, 
we're going to learn that what we believe matters and it, it matters deeply and it affects not only our eternal destiny, but also anchors our perspectives and beliefs in a day where uh, there are a lot of different voices. The topic is the resurrection of believers when Jesus returns. The church members at Corinth had no trouble believing that Jesus was, had been raised from the dead, but they scoffed at the notion that decaying bodies of believers long dead would be raised when Jesus returned. Paul was not concerned about their feelings as he corrected their unorthodox beliefs. He just told them straight. Why? Because beliefs matter. There's much to cover in today's lengthy text, but we're going to begin in verses 12 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15. So if you would please stand for the reading of Scripture as God's Word is read. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have, been, who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. There was a disconnect inherent in the Corinthians' belief system. They believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, but again, thought, how could a flesh, how could a body whose flesh, which flesh had decayed for, for several years, be raised? From the dead. Well, the Apostle Paul said something like, you know, I, I understand why you think that, but if you just process this a little. No, he didn't say that at all. He came at him pretty hard. He was shocked by this disconnect, scandalized even. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The common sense of their day did not allow them to believe this. They, they sought to utilize common sense. Okay, Jesus rose from the dead. He, he was only there three days. His body had not really started to decay at the same level that it would beyond that. So it's okay to think that he did. But the, the common sense of the day just did not allow for a corpse to be reanimated and live as he or she had previously lived. It's a problem when we're committed to some truths in the scripture, but not to others, isn't it? I mean, where do you, how do you choose? To view the Bible is only partially true, 
makes you the judge of God's word, not the other way around. The Bible makes many audacious claims. And we have to decide up front, do we believe it or not? We don't get to say, well, I think that one is good, but this one over here, I just can't go with that. We're not allowed to pick and choose what is acceptable and what is not. But that's not exactly the way Paul said it. He didn't say, so look, just believe it and don't worry about it. He made a logical case to prove the resurrection of believers is tied to the resurrection of Jesus. You cannot have one without the other, Paul said. It is a package deal. Why? Because we're united with Christ. When Christ died as a substitute for our sins... It is said that we died with him in scripture. Then Romans 6, 5 tells us, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Our union with Jesus' death and resurrection, while we remain in this sinful world and while we contend not only with the world and with Satan, but with our own flesh, even as we seek To please and glorify the Lord is part of the already not yet tension with which all believers live and wrestle. The Corinthians sought to eliminate this tension. That's what people do, don't they? We seek to eliminate the tensions in Scripture that God, the writers of Scripture... The Holy Spirit just don't seem concerned with eliminating. We're we're called to live with certain tensions. The Corinthians did it this way. Well, Jesus died for our sins, and, 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 and his resurrection proves that he's the Savior, but he was only there three days. You know, I bet if we saw old Demetra walking around, she wouldn't be looking too good. I mean, how long has she been dead? Five or six years? Paul pointed out the fallacies of their half-acceptances of God's truth. If believers will not be raised from the dead when Jesus returns, then all of the following things are also not true. First, Jesus has not been raised from the dead if the resurrection of believers is not true. That's how tight our union with Christ is with those who believe in Jesus. If we're, going, if we're not going to be raised, then Jesus was not raised. And that leads to the conclusion that preaching the gospel is in vain. It's a waste of time. What, what are you even doing here on a beautiful Sunday morning? I mean, if there's not an eternal future for us, preaching is a waste of time. Third, our faith is meaningless. Someone asked me recently, it's a fair question, what I mean when I say that biblical faith has an object or that biblical faith is not faith in faith. You see a lot of people today who just seem to have faith in faith. They say, well, I just have faith that everything's going to work out. And you ask them, what is your faith based on? And they just sort of look at you like, well, it's on faith, of course, which I suppose means faith in 
in the universe. I've encountered a lot of people this last year that I've had conversations with that talk about faith in the universe and how the universe brought us together. And I said, well, I, I would characterize that a little differently. As you know, I think the Lord appointed this time for us to be together and talk about this. Our faith is grounded in gospel truth, but if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is meaningless. That would mean, fourth, that those who preach the gospel are false witnesses, not just the ones who preach from this pulpit. All of you who share the gospel are false witnesses. Look, a lot of people, understandably, don't want to hear the gospel. And they think that Christians are trying to scare people into living according to a morality that should no longer be the standard. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, and if we as believers will not be raised from the dead, then it's true. We're fear mongers. If we will not be raised, the fifth point is true. Faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. It's not only meaningless to base your life on something that is not true. It can lead to despair. Since we have a sin problem, if there is no resurrection, we will have a sin problem for eternity. Which means that believers who have died have perished. There is no comfort for lost loved ones if Jesus did not rise from the dead. And if we have no hope in the resurrection, then Paul's last point is true as well. Believers are of all people most to be pitied. We have wagered everything on the truth of the gospel. That's why we can't play at this life. We can't have one foot in the world, one foot in the church. We have to be serious. If Jesus' resurrection is a religious fairy tale, and if our resurrection is not assured, then why suffer because of faulty beliefs? Jesus demands everything, and what a pitiful people we are if in this life only we have hope, and if this life is all there is. But, verse 20 tells us, the resurrection is true, and thus none of these concerns are true. Verses 20 to 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. When he uses this kind of language as he does in Romans 5 and 6 as well, when he's saying all in Christ will be made alive, it means all those who are in Christ shall be made alive and given eternal life. All will be resurrected, but only those who are in Christ 
will live with him in eternity. Christ is the first fruits of those who have died. Or Jesus' resurrection was the promise of our resurrection. The idea of first fruits, we know it was big to the Jewish people and, and, and the Jewish culture, culture. There were uh, feasts around the first fruits. It was important in the Greco Roman world as well. In addition to being a promise of future blessings, it also gave an indication of, of what the quality of the crops were going to be. If the first fruits, uh, if the crops in the first fruit, fruits were good, then the crops were going to likely be good for the year. I think we can take confidence in Jesus' resurrection as we consider our own resurrection. In verse 22, Paul introduces the truth that there are in reality only two families on the earth. Adam's family to which we all belong and then Jesus' family uh, to which those who have trusted Christ belong. I'm going to talk about this a lot more next week as Paul develops the theology behind the doctrine of Jesus' humanity as the last or the second Adam. But for now, it's enough to say that all humanity identifies with Adam. We die because of our sin, but it's also true that we die because of Adam's sin. Those who acknowledge their sinfulness and put their trust only in Christ for salvation are transferred or adopted into the family of Jesus. So Adam's family here, we're all in there. Some of us are taken out, adopted, transferred into the life of the family of God in Christ. Now, as we talked about Romans 6, 7, and 8 several years ago, two, three years ago, it's like Adam we're no longer in Adam, but Adam is still in us until the day we die. It's kind of like he grabbed hold of our foot and hitched a ride. And we're going to be done with Adam one day entirely. But for now, we're in Christ. We have the hope of the resurrection. And we will be raised to perfection. We'll be glorified. We will be just like Jesus. Our desire is to be as much like Jesus as we can, and that only comes through allowing him to work through us. In Adam all die, in Christ all who believe shall be made alive even after they die. Verses 23 to 26. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ... Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do you see the progression here, our God is a God of order. Christ's resurrection was the indicator of what was to come. He was raised from the dead. And when he returns, we will be raised as well. Our bodies will be raised as well. Our soul will be with him. We'll talk about that next week already. And maybe some sort of intermediary 
body between now and then. But these bodies will be raised and changed when he comes back. And that will happen at the end of time. Now, I know there are a lot of questions about end times. We'll get to that when we come to Revelation next year. Uh, but, But you have to know that at this point, Paul was not wanting to discuss the finer points of millennial theology and eschatology. He was talking about the general, the big picture of what's going to happen at the end. When Christ returns, Jesus will destroy all his enemies. And as much as we talk about how much God loves us, there's a whole lot at stake as to whether or not people receive this life that God has given to us in Christ. His enemies will be destroyed. And at that time, death will disappear because Jesus will have defeated the final enemy. Only then will Jesus deliver the kingdom to God the Father. That's not difficult for us to comprehend. We get, we see the progression here. The next two verses might prove a little more difficult. Verses 27 and 28. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, God, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him, to God, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. One thing that Paul was doing in these verses, I'll get into explaining it in just a moment, was to say, was was to make the point that there's not some way in which Christ is going to be exalted above the God of the universe. Now, Christ was the God of the universe, but the kinds of ways that Corinthians played with theology, Paul needed to say it this way. Even though Jesus is the member of the Trinity who subdues his enemies, it is ultimately God the Father who directs all that is done. Jesus always did and does the will of his Father. And even though the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, Ontologically, that's, that's a fun one, isn't it? There is functional order within the Trinity. I don't expect you to understand that fully, if at all. But God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, ontologically. But functionally, there is order in the Trinity. We talk about the first, second, and third persons of the Trinity because the Father sent the Son and both the Father and the Son are said to have sent the Spirit. But the unity of God or the oneness of God remains intact. While Revelation is going to point to Jesus as the subject of our praise and worship through eternity, 
Jesus will willingly submit himself to the Father at the end of time. And as far as we understand, Jesus will remain submissive to the Father throughout eternity. Does it mean he's less than the Father? Does it mean he's less important? No, it's the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all are God. And they're one. What does this mean and what does it mean for us? The Holy Trinity is one God, three persons. One essence, three persons. And that means we have an awesome God. How can the triune God be explained? Look, I used to use them myself, but but don't try with the clover and the egg and stuff like that. Just... Just leave that up. It's so far beyond all of that. And I know mothers have probably told their kids, and you're going to get it on the way home. I, I'm, I'm sorry about that. But the, but, but the Trinity, the, our triune God is so far beyond that. Brilliant theologians a long time ago and brilliant theologians of our day grapple with better ways to explain God And one of the most brilliant theologians to wrestle with this concept was Gregory of Nazianzus, whose quote I'll read just before we come to the table. We still have a few issues to deal with, though, beginning with verse 29. It's a doozy. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So does this mean baptism of the dead? Does this mean that the Mormons were right all along? Well, here's a hint. The Mormons deny the deity of Christ and nothing else matters after that. I'm sure they base their theology of baptism for the dead on this verse. Leon Morris, so so what does it mean? Leon Morris has identified between 30 and 40 different views on the meaning of verse 29. Imagine that. One of the better options, and, and it really seems likely to me, is that some of the Corinthian believers were being baptized On behalf of those who had died, they had believed in Christ, but they had not been baptized to that point. And so they were saying, we need to be baptized in their place. It's not that Paul was affirming uh, this practice in any way, but rather he was pointing out the inconsistencies of their beliefs and practices. So he's just making a point, a logical, it's a logical, look. If when you die, nothing else happens, you're dead for all eternity, what in the world? What are you being baptized for the dead? 
Furthermore, why am I and the other apostles constantly putting ourselves in danger if life ends at death? I die or I put myself in danger of death every day. Why would I do that if I didn't believe in the resurrection? Paul was passionate about the truth of bodily resurrection of believers and for good reason. As David Garland says, resurrection means endless hope, but no resurrection means a hopeless end and breeds dissipation, debauchery, careless, immoral living. That's why Paul said that without the hope of the resurrection, why wouldn't we just all party like we were Epicureans all the time? Life's a party because when you die, you can't do anything else. Now, some of you, if you felt like the end, life at the end was going to be the end of your existence, you would say, well, I I think I'll try to make the most of this life. I think I would be trying to find a party. I, I, maybe, maybe you wouldn't, but I, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not giving up everything if there's no resurrection. But we are not those who have no hope, no motivation, no purpose. We believe that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the resurrection of the body. Why do we believe? Why do some believe and some don't? There are theological explanations, but my best explanation is we just do. Some believe, some don't. We don't know who's going to believe and who's not going to believe, which is why we have to preach this gospel with fervor. In verse 33, Paul utilizes an interesting quote from the pagan playwright Meander to make his point. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. In other words... If you hang around with heretics, your behavior is likely to be negatively affected. You'll slide back into your pagan ways. Why? Because beliefs matter. Do orthodox believers struggle with doing, always doing the right thing? <clears throat> Absolutely. It's why we need the promise of the the gospel as proclaimed and practiced at this table. Paul closes this portion of his argument by admonishing the Corinthians to awake from their drunken stupor and work on their knowledge and understanding of God. Why? Because beliefs matter. And the Corinthians were lazily incorporating contemporary philosophy into their theology. And Paul said, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Do you not know any better about God and his ways to think it's all right 
to live any way that you want to live and proclaim even still your faith in Christ? Quit playing games. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not keep sinning. Some of you don't have enough knowledge of God to even understand the contradiction. I say this to your shame. The application for today, know your Bible and be careful not to mix cultural wisdom with biblical theology. Now, we've covered a lot of material in a very short amount of time. I want to remind those of you, if, if some of you are uh, more visual processors, then we have the, the, the manuscripts of the sermons online. You can go there if you want to go back and try to process a little bit more uh, deeply. As we prepare our hearts for the table, I want to read a quote uh, that has been read here before several times. In fact, I try to read this every year or two. You might hope that I become forgetful and read this every month or two. I think you're going to appreciate this quote from one of the three Cappadocians who lived in the late fourth century and who played such an important role in our understanding of the Trinity. The one of whom I am speaking, of course, is Gregory of Nazianzus, whom you know so well and love so dearly. Maybe not. <laughs> You'll under, you won't understand all of this, but what you do understand will bless your soul immensely. Quote, <clears throat> This I give you to share and to defend all your life the one Godhead and power found in the three in unit <clears throat> and comprising the three separately, not unequal in substances or natures, <clears throat> neither increased nor diminished by superiorities <clears throat> nor inferiorities, in every respect equal, in every respect the same, just as the beauty and the greatness of the heavens is one. The infinite conjunction of three infinite ones. Each God, when considered in himself, <clears throat> as the Father, so the Son. As the Son, so the Holy Spirit. The three, one God, when contemplated together, each God because consubstantial, one God because of the monarchia. Consubstantial <clears throat> means of the same substance, and monarchia means the unity of God. He's referring to the majesty of God. So three persons of the same substance, or three persons, one God. Let's continue. <clears throat> no sooner do I conceive of the one then I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole. 
and my eyes are filled and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. That's a pretty good description of the Trinity, isn't it? I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Amen. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, I'll ask those who are serving to come forward and the worship team, if you would come forward. I want to share a few instructions as they are coming forward. First of all, you will want to know, some of you will especially want to know, that the bread is gluten-free. Uh, so if you have any allergies, uh, you're be, feel free to partake anyway. Uh, secondly, we'll be serving from the front today. So um, there will be a station with two people with the, with the bread and the juice in front of each section. You'll come forward down the interior aisles. You'll go back up the middle aisle and the outer aisles. Uh, ushers will alert you as to when you are supposed to come. Once you receive the elements, please take them back to your seat. Don't partake just yet. Take them back to your seat and then we will partake together. If you are unable uh, to come forward to receive the elements then someone from the back will serve you. This meal is intended for believers. And so if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, we invite you to partake with us. Uh, if not, uh, you don't have to come forward. You don't have to participate. We would ask that you not participate if you're not a believer. But what better time than right now to profess your faith in Jesus Christ, your only hope of heaven in Jesus Christ. This would be a wonderful day to do that. The scripture today comes from 1 Corinthians 11, where the apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes we are this morning affirming our trust and belief in Jesus. We're affirming our faith in the truth of the gospel. We are participating, 1 Corinthians 10 says, with the body of Christ and with one another as we partake at this meal. And we also proclaim that Jesus will return and we will be resurrected and live with him forever. 1 Corinthians 11 also tells us that we should examine ourselves before we come to the meal. There's sin in your life. Please don't let that keep you from coming. Confess it today. You 
are forgiven in Christ when you confess your sins. If you're living uh, uh, apart from the Lord and you could care less and you don't plan to, I would encourage you not to partake of the meal today. But all can partake. We can all do that right now. Take the time. I'll give just a moment for you to pray and ask the Lord to forgive you for the things that you have done that were sin in this past week, in this day even. And he will gladly do so. Let's pray for just a few moments, if you would, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we confess uh, that we have sinned. We delight in the forgiveness of our sins for eternity, but we recognize that our feet get dirty. And even then, it's not we that clean our feet up. It's the Lord Jesus who takes the towel and kneels and washes our feet. So, Father... Forgive us for the things that we have done this week that we ought not to have done. And for the things that we have left undone that we should have done. Forgive us for our sins in thought, word, and deed. Cleanse us by the blood of Christ. And as we partake today, as we receive these elements... May we receive the forgiveness that is so beautifully and freely given according to your caris, your grace. Bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.